Hello, good evening everybody. I'm Edward Lucas. Um, familiar faces here in the audience. Nice to see some old friends again. I was a student here in 1980-83. Didn't learn very much, but got interested in Eastern Europe, which is where I met uh, Charles in Ukraine in 1998 when I was the Economist's Moscow correspondent. Charles was playing a lonely furrow. Is that right? In uh, one of very few... Um, foreign correspondents who actually had the um, <coughs> commitment and stamina to sit around in Ukraine, a country we didn't cover very much, in the absolute belief that it was going to get interesting sooner or later, and it did. Um, the most important thing, actually, is say, buy this book, and don't just buy one copy, buy two, one for yourself and one for any friend of yours who's interested um, in it. It's a really terrific read, and it doesn't just get under the skin of the Eurasianism political philosophy, which is uh, extremely interesting and important in Putin's Russia, but it also gets into some of the great mysteries of uh, post-1991 Russia, what really happened with the shelling of Parliament, what really happened with the apartment block bombings, what happened with all sorts of other um, important political events, which we reported at the time, not really understanding what was happening. So it's uh, partly a work of um, cultural history and political philosophy, but it's also an excellent bit of reporting and a kind of uh, detective story about um, the real hidden history of Russia. But you've come to hear Charles, not me, so I'm going to sit down, Charles is going to talk for a bit, then I'm going to ask some questions, then you're going to ask some questions, um, and we will carry on till a hard stop at eight o'clock, at which point we may go to the pub. Thank you very much. Well, please welcome Charles. Thank you very much, Ed. That's a very kind introduction. Um, yeah, we've, uh, we've known each other for uh, almost 20 years, and I've been following your, your career, and, um, and I, I really appreciate the, the kind words. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to disappoint a few people. I'm, I'm not very current on the latest day-to-day stuff uh, of Russian nationalism, um, I, I was an expert on Russian nationalism and followed it uh, on a day-to-day basis um, uh, until about two years ago uh, when I became an expert on Chinese e-commerce um, <laughs> and now based in Beijing. Um, so uh, anybody who wants to talk about the sort of the very up-to-the-minute um, latest events of, you know, who's up and who's down in the, in the Donetsk Republic or... Um, you know the the latest musings of uh, Yegor uh, Prasvirin or or any of these uh, you know really quite um, actual questions of, of Russian nationalism. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to to uh, to discuss these adequately. Um, but uh, I've what I what I've written is a history and I think a guide that will be useful uh, to to people who want to. to to know more about Russian nationalism, I've, I've, I've written. It's, it's basically a history of Russian coffee house fringe nationalists with beards uh, and how they have become uh, mainstream pundits and with you know national talk shows and uh, the chairing departments of big universities. Uh, and how they've basically become, how nationalism has become a mainstream phenomenon in in Russia over the last sort of decade or half decade, and the the way that that has happened, I mean, it's 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 quite interesting because basically 
while these nationalists, uh, while these kind of guys who were sitting in their basements, uh, you know, formerly sitting in their basements writing pamphlets and blogs, were making this transition to the, to the political big time, uh, Russia was starting to behave in a new way. Russia was starting to behave more aggressively. Um, there was more rhetoric about, um, you know, empire, more rhetoric about nationalism. Um, and, and the entire context of Russian politics started to change. And it, I'm not just talking about Putin being more nationalistic. Uh, I'm talking about the Russian opposition becoming more nationalistic. Um, the whole center of gravity in Russia uh, has started to move towards nationalism, and I think that's a very complicated process. And I've been trying, and I've, I've tried to kind of reproduce what what I think happened in, in this in this book. Um, and I would argue that it's not driven entirely by Putin or by these nationalists kind of wagging the dog. Uh, it's driven by, you know, a kind of complex cultural process. Um, but it's, it's, it resulted from a decision uh, early on by Putin uh, and the Kremlin to empower nationalists of all types in Russia in an effort to both limit nationalism and neutralize it as a threat to the state and limit and neutralize separatism, but also to kind of take advantage of nationalism and use it as a way to mobilize support, uh, as, a, as a way to, to mobilize, you know, to sort of consolidate Russia politically and also to expand in an imperial way in, in, in what we've seen in, in Georgia and Ukraine over the last, um, you know, half decade. So that's, that's what my book is about. Um, what I think the best, the best way to do it, the, the best way for me to tell the story of this process, this process of, of co-opting and using nationalism is to, to tell a, a murder mystery. Um, uh, and this, this, there, there was a, a killing that happened in January of 2009 which kind of exposed this entire policy and the trial, the subsequent trial, which happened in 2014 and 2015, the testimony from the trial is actually quite illuminating about what, how this, what they call managed nationalism was implemented and how it went horribly wrong. Um, so this was one of the first stories that I covered when I, when I came to Russia. It was in 2009. It was January. It was the middle of winter. And a human rights lawyer uh, named Stanislav Markilov uh, was, had given a press conference in the center of Moscow and he was coming out of his uh, press conference with a colleague, Anastasia Baburova, who was a journalist at, uh, at the opposition newspaper Novaya Gazeta. And they were walking down uh, Prichistinka Street, which is a very ritzy street in the center of Moscow, and they were walking towards uh, the, the metro, and a guy came up behind them and shot them both in the head. And that murder was incredibly... Uh, I mean, it, it, was an in, it was an incredibly noisy political event, and the opposition in Russia... Uh, was was very distressed about it. There were demonstrations. There was also a lot of suspicion about exactly who did the murder because it was carried out in a very professional way. 
the guy, whoever, whoever did it, um, was quite, you know, had, he clearly had some sort of training. The, the police found no spent shell casings at the murder, uh, the, the murder site. The guy had obviously collected them, couldn't identify the weapon. He walked 200 meters uh, from Pritistinka Street to Krapotkinskaya Metro uh, in the middle of Moscow, uh, through, you know, being photographed by numerous CCTV cameras, always at the wrong angle, always wearing a hat, walked right in front of Christ the Savior Cathedral into the metro and disappeared. And, you know, the, the, it, was, it was widely suspected that this person probably had some sort of special services background or military training or something like that. Um, so everybody was a bit surprised when the police arrested a guy named Yevgeny, uh, Nikita Tikhonov, who was a history student, a weedy intellectual with no military training, uh, no special services background that anybody could detect. Um, he was a, a radical nationalist, and he uh, then confessed to the murder. And... Um, People were a bit suspicious because obviously a confession doesn't really mean anything uh, in in the high-profile murder investigation in in Russia, um, and so. But but gradually, according to you know, I mean, I was reporting the story. Colleagues were reporting the story. The people who knew uh, Markelov, the people who knew the the deceased, um, said, "Well, actually, it's, it seems like the police um, got their man." Uh, Tikhonov does seem to have been. He had a, a previous uh, arrest record, had um, been wanted for murder, and uh, and was a very violent uh, skinhead nationalist. He, you know, sort of, he he. He was a, a, a kind of a, a philosopher gone wrong in the in the way of, uh, of sort of a you know a Dostoevsky character, um, and so around this time, I met with a, a guy named Alexander Barkashov, who is um, uh, the kind of the the oldest, the godfather of all Russian nationalists. Uh, he was the leader of one of the first Russian nationalist movements in the 1980s. It was, it was named Russian uh, National Uni- Unity, or Russian National uh, uh, Unity. Yeah, Russian National Unity. Um, and he, uh, I just wanted to talk to him in general about this about the situation. And one of, one thing he said was very curious. Um, I, I drove all the way out to his farm, uh, three hours outside of Moscow. He. He's an interesting guy. He breeds uh, of Charka fighting dogs and has an, a collection of medieval armor and composite bows that he likes to show off to people. Um, so he kind of lives the life of, a, of an edgy militant nationalist. Um, but his organization, Russian National Unity, was, I mean, this is, it was a kindergarten compared to what they've got today in Russia, the skinhead gangs that, that, that are now operating. I mean, all they did was sort of march around and um, pass out, you know, uh, protocols of the elders of Zion or something like that. That was, that was nothing compared to what you've got today in Russia. And he's, but he's kind of a, an, you know, he, he still knows everything about who, you know, all the, you know, all the goings-on in the nationalist movement. And he said, by the, at the end of the interview, he said, you know what, actually, uh, Tikhonov was a member of an, of an organization, and it was called uh, Ruski Obras, or Russian Image. 
And Ruski Obras was a Kremlin organization. And he said this. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. That's an interesting conspiracy theory. Um, okay, can you prove it? And he said, no, no, just everybody knows it. You know, you should look into it. Yeah, okay. So I did. And, and it turns out, sure enough, Nikita Tikhonov's organization, uh, Ruski Obras, uh, was in fact, had, there, was, there was a lot of, they, they had, there was a certain amount of suspicion about them because they were able to, for instance, hold uh, demonstrations in the middle of Moscow. Uh, this is something that if you're a nationalist skinhead gang in Russia, the authorities don't really like to have people like marching through the center of Moscow anyway in general. Uh, least of all uh, skinhead nationalists uh, who can sort of beat up the police and stuff. So uh, they tend to, if you're, a, if you're a nationalist movement, you, get, you can get permission to hold a march, but you have to hold it on the outskirts of Moscow, out in the suburbs. These guys were able to hold a, a march in the middle of Moscow, right near Red Square. And, and all the other nationalist organizations that I spoke to said, this is, you know, these guys are definitely... Um, you know, a, a Kremlin project. So then I talked to Ruski Obras. Uh, they have a, a, a spokesman. Uh, they're a normal kind of political movement. Uh, and their spokesman said, well, actually, yes. Um, <laughs> he, the way he put it is, the Kremlin gives us a green light. Uh, we do get, in, in, in return for good behavior, you know, we don't kill people. Um, and we don't uh, fling Nazi salutes at our, our demonstrations. <laughs> I actually said this. <laughs> um, we can, uh, you know, we are given lenient treatment by the Kremlin, and um, we can hold marches, and they give us uh, support. So I thought that was an odd thing for them to admit to, but, but um, you know, it, 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 you know that, that it seems to have been accurate. So, and they were closed down soon after this murder, so they didn't exist for very long after that. But um, now, th this was my first encounter with this uh, policy that I've described, which is in Russian called upravlyami uh, nationalism, or managed nationalism. And it's an effort to, well, this is the way that the Kremlin manages and managed politics for most of the last decade and a half in, in Russia, which is that they um, create kind of double organizations. Uh, they create sort of simulacro kind of you know, political parties that are, they say they are, you know, communists or leftists or Democrats or, you know, nationalists and they are kind of but they do the kremlin's bidding and and they and they only take the you know opposition to a certain degree to a certain limit um, and one nationalist leader who I, I spoke to about this uh, a guy named alexander bilov uh, who is the leader of the um, the, the movement against illegal immigration it was a, another skinhead uh, gang um, in Moscow is one of three big kind of radical nationalist uh, semi-opposition skinhead gangs. And the way he, he put it to me was, um, the Kremlin has the following principle for dealing with any political 
organization. Uh, if they cannot destroy it, they will lead it, and they can't destroy the nationalists. So, yeah, so this is how Kremlin, the, the Kremlin managed politics under, uh, there, there was the, the, the guy who kind of created this, this approach to politics, this, this uh, approach of, of having, um, you know, double organizations and simulacra and kind of this postmodern approach to politics is a guy named Vladislav Surkov, who was the, the deputy chief of staff uh, under uh, Putin for until 2011. So about, uh, yeah, the first 11 years of Putin's presidency. He was the guy who managed uh, the, the domestic political situation, and he was, he was actually an advertising executive who they got to, to run uh, the domestic politics department in the Kremlin. That sort of tells you a lot about their approach uh, to, to politics. Um, and, and this approach, this kind of upravlyami or managed uh, approach to all politics worked pretty well until, uh, except with nationalism and except with this case of the, these nationalist groups that they basically created or managed or led, uh, these all ended up getting out of control. All of the nationalists, starting with Ruski Obras, starting with uh, Tikhonov's uh, gang, um, and the first signal that that was going to happen was the murder of Mr. Markelov. Um, and I, I'd just like to sort of take it aside to explain why um, nationalism might be different. Why? Why this is? Um, why? Why is the Kremlin so concerned about nationalism? Why are they concern, concerned to manage it? And what is the danger that nationalism represents in Russia? Um, and so I, I just I'll quote probably the, the the top one of maybe the one or two top scholars of of nationalism in the modern era. A, a, Cambridge historian named Ernest Gellner, um, who wrote the, the following, um, wherever nationalism has taken root, uh, it has tended to prevail with ease over other modern ideologies. And I think that's true, and I think that's, that was true when, when, when he wrote it uh, in the 1980s, and it's even more true today. We're, we're living in, a, in, a, in an era of nationalism. I mean, you just look out the window, I mean... Um, <laughs> some, you know, nationalist fantasies very close to home um, here in, in London. Um, and, uh, you know, the rise of Donald Trump, the rise of the far right in Europe, uh, the rise of identity politics and militant fundamentalism in the Middle East, the rise of, of, of Russian nationalism, um, you know, and take your pick of, of UKIP, Brexit in the UK. I mean, all of these things are sort of, these are all... Um, kind of nationalist projects and they're all this is a period I think in the last decade where we're just seeing this kind of snowballing of nationalism in, in all countries and, and Russia's is one of them um, and I think that the, the Gellner quote is interesting because it shows you that the, I mean he, he thought of nationalism as something in itself it is something he's not saying that nationalists are more suited to ruling or nationalists are stronger he's saying that nationalism something about nationalism chases everything else out it's just some, somehow more suited to um, winning competition against other ideas um, than you know 
liberalism or communism or, you know, it's just in, in this period we're seeing nationalism take off everywhere. Um, and for precisely this reason, in Russia, there was a long-standing uh, gentleman's agreement not to use nationalism beyond a certain limit because the Russian elite had seen um, what had happened when, uh, you know, in the late 1980s, oh, the rise of nationalism had torn the state apart and, and very nearly created a, a Yugoslavia-type civil war across the entire Eurasian landmass. Um, and, and so they were very anxious to see that that, that, that did not repeat itself. They, w- they were very afraid of, of nationalism taking root and spreading. Um, and so there was always going to be a kind of an inherent tension in Russia between the imperative not to use nationalism and to limit nationalism as a threat, but also to take the temptation to take advantage of it. And I think that is kind of what happened. The Kremlin decided, well, actually, um, you know, Putin sounds really good when he um, bangs on the table and talks about, you know, uh, the motherland. Um, he sounds really good when he uses words like Novorossiya, you know, uh, when he uses Tsarist language or, or imperialist uh, nationalist language. He gets, you know, high scores in focus groups and, and polls and things like that. And so there was, there was a temptation to, to simultaneously use it but also try and channel it and, and, and this, this effort just sort of went out of control. And, and some of the, the groups that would use nationalism ultimately to challenge the Kremlin were groups that the Kremlin actually created, such as um, Mr. Tikhonov's organization and such as the, the other, there were, there were three or four other very large groups of radical nationalists that, that had a sort of unclear um, links to security services and the police and some funding from who knows where and stuff. So anyway, the the interesting thing about Ruski Obras, a Russian image, um, Nikita Tikhonov's organization, was that it was basically a terrorist organization that functioned uh, with the full knowledge of a part of the Kremlin, according to uh, court testimony later on. So when I spoke to the, the, Ruski, the Ruski Obras press secretary, they said, well, we have cut our ties with Mr. Tikhonov back in 2006 when he was wanted for murder, and we've not had any contact with him uh, since. Um, and then later on, it turned out that that was not the case, and um, in reality, uh, this is going to be a bit hard to follow. I'm just going to try and whiz through the, the, the court testimony that came out of when they finally put Mr. Tikhonov on trial and his girlfriend uh, on trial. Uh, then they put the, the, the man who was a friend of theirs who was also head of, of the organization on trial, and there was reams and reams and reams of court testimony that's been made public, and this is quite an interesting kind of resource to, if, if you have uh, <laughs> several days to read a lot of uh, Russian court transcripts, uh, you can learn an awful lot about um, uh, Kremlin support for uh, militant nationalist organizations in, in Russia. 
Um, so according to um, Tikhonov's girlfriend, uh, Evgenia Khasis, who was also who was given an 18-year sentence in 2014 for aiding uh, Tikhonov's crime, um, she described uh, two organizations. There was Ruski Obras, which was a, a legal, <coughs> a political front organization, uh, similar to what she said to um, uh, Sinn Féin, and uh, then there was another militant terrorist organization called the Bayevaya Organizatsiya Ruskich Nationalistov, or the Militant Organization of Russian, Russian uh, Nationalists, uh, BORN, um, which was an underground militant group that was headed by Mr. Tikhonov. And Mr. Tikhonov's friend from university, a guy named Ilya Garyachev, uh, ran the legal uh, open uh, organization, uh, Ruski Obras. Um, and then what, um, and then both uh, Mr. Tikhonov and his girlfriend, Ms. Hasis, uh, testified that um, Garyachev had um, boasted of having patronage with the Kremlin, uh, had met, uh, they had met uh, what they described as um, the Kremlin that this organization that they had uh, had a Kremlin kurator. Now, in Russian, a kurator is like a a conductor. I don't know how to pronounce how to how to translate that. It's somebody in the Kremlin who is a kind of liaison officer or a liaison person who works together with. Um, how about minder? Minder is good. That's great. Um, a Kremlin minder, which is not an official position. Um, but they named the minder. Uh, the minder testified. Uh, the minder has given several interviews. His name is Leonid Simunin. He's currently apparently um, fighting in eastern Ukraine at the moment. Um, and, uh, and he was responsible for ferrying requests from this organization to the Kremlin and patronage from the Kremlin to this organization, according to the testimony of a couple of the people involved in this uh, Relationship, including Tikhonov and um, his girlfriend, uh, Ms. Kasis. Now, the Kremlin has since denied that this ever happened. Um, I think, you know, it's not, now the, I mean, the, the, Mr. Tikhonov said uh, very clearly in court uh, that his friend um, Ilya Garyachev had said, had told him to kill Markelov and that there was an interest, let me just, that the regime was interested in this, um, that Markelov, the lawyer who was, who was uh, murdered, was a, an ideologist of the opposition and there are people in the regime who are interested in, um, in seeing him dead. And if he did this favor for the regime, uh, they would forgive him uh, everything he was wanted for murder, uh, a previous murder, and so he was living illegally. And so they, they said, uh, apparently, he said that they that that he had been promised some sort of amnesty or something like that in exchange for killing Markello. Now, clearly, he wasn't given amnesty. I mean, he's he's been given a life sentence for murder. Um, so there's, you know, this th- there's some reason to suspect that maybe all, not all of this is accurate, but. Um, whether the Kremlin actually ordered this organization to murder Stanislav Markelov is, is 
very unclear, and I wouldn't say necessarily that that's true. But they did know. It, it is very clear, uh, reading these uh, transcripts, that the Kremlin knew uh, that a political uh, legal organization uh, that enjoyed its patronage continued to have links to an illegal uh, terrorist organization, and d- despite that, um, the, the legal front organization continued to get funding from the Kremlin. Um, there's one guy who actually knows the answers to all of this. His name is Nikita Ivanov. He was uh, Sorkov's deputy in the Kremlin, and he's now uh, a senator um, in the upper house of uh, parliament. Um, but uh, I've never been able to talk to him. So um, anyway, so I guess this sort of shows us a number of things. There has been uh, an effort by the Kremlin clearly to create uh, or back or sanction some nationalist movements in Russia um, of this, of which this is just one example. Um, the other thing that's clear is this, this effort um, did not go very well uh, and seems to have they've lost control of it. Um, now, in 2009, the police seemed to have started to go after these skinhead radical nationalist organizations. Now, it seemed, it, it's possible that, that Markelov's murder was a signal. They realized that this had policy had gone off the rails and they needed to just roll these, these organizations up. Um, that's one interpretation. That seemed, that's probably the most likely. Um, so the, the, the big three sort of skinhead radical nationalist organizations in Russia have all been rolled up now. Um, the, the, the founders or, or leaders are either in prison or um, on probation or the leader, the, 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 the movements themselves have been banned. Um, but for whatever reason, the, the genie seems to have gotten out of the bottle and uh, the movement really hasn't actually died. It's gone both underground, but it's also mutated into an actually quite powerful opposition movement in Russia. Um, in 2011, there were the first major demonstrations against Putin's regime uh, in the streets of Moscow. These were attended by up to 100,000 people. I reported on them. Um, there was some controversy about the numbers. I think it was about 100,000. That sounds about right to me. That's quite unprecedented. A lot of the people who showed up for these demonstrations were nationalists. They were waving, you know, yellow and white and black flags. Um, they were uh, using slogans that they probably shouldn't have used. Um, it was all, you know, there were there were lots of liberals and lots of, uh, I mean, it, it, the, the the opposition coalition to Putin was quite broad, um, but nationalists certainly made up a quite a, a, an important part of that. Um, opposition movement, uh, and it really launched the career of Alexei Navalny, who is um, uh, uh, sort of the the leader, or the the de facto leader of of the opposition to Putin, and he's himself a nationalist. Um, So the nationalists really got quite a boost from from this this opposition movement. Um, Putin seems to have answered this opposition movement with... um, by, by playing his own nationalist card, uh, the you know when 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 the the opposition talks about um, you know they talk in their sort of buzzwords about um, you know ethnic unity or ethnic crime, um, they 
uh, Putin tends to answer back with kind of the vocabulary of Tsarist Russia, Russia imperial um, slogans, um, and increasingly uh, something called Eurasia, um, which is what my book is, is mainly, mainly focuses on. It's a, a kind of supranational imperial nationalism. Um, and uh, he's begun to um, weave this kind of Eurasian... Now, now Eurasia is a, a, uh, a concept of Russian nationalism which has become kind of an official, um, an official nationalism that, that the Kremlin has, has sponsored and, and um, begun using... Um, and uh, you, you see it in, in Putin's speeches. You see it in, um, uh, I mean, particularly in, um, uh, and, and, and on television. Um, and, and it's also in the kind of the, the, um, the rising profile of the, the adherence of this trend, Eurasianism. Um, one of them is a, an acquaintance of mine is Alexander Dugan. He uh, is sort of the chief Eurasianist among um, Russian nationalists, and uh, he enjoys a certain amount of favor uh, from Putin's circle, though it's not entirely clear whether Putin has ever heard of Dugin himself uh, or uh, has read any of his books. Um, but, I mean, I'll give you a, uh, an example of how this kind of buzzword works. Um, Eurasia was originally created in the 1920s by a group of, of exile nationalists as a way to kind of to, to neutralize what they saw as the fatal nationalism of, of Russia, to, to neutralize separatism in Russia and to create a continent-spanning ideology of nationalism that, that would not dissolve into internecine nationalist civil war, um, which they saw as, as the, 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 the kind of the tragic flaw of, of the Russian Empire. Um, their concept of nationalism, this Eurasianism, was sort of handed down over decades. Um, it was discovered at the end of the, at the, end of the Soviet Union by a group of, of conservative um, conservative bureaucrats in the the upper reaches of the state and also simultaneously by a group of kind of bohemian nationalists who um, took a, a huge interest in in um, in publishing books about it and 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 sort of expanding this as a concept um, so so Dugan um, in nineteen ninety seven wrote a book about uh, Geopolitics about Eurasianism, and it's become kind of a a textbook for Russian hardline nationalists. Uh, it's even used as a text; it's literally used as a textbook uh, in in the military. Um, and this was the first kind of example, the, the first attempt to popularize this idea of Eurasia as a as a as an ideology. Um, so then, fast forward to 2011, Putin writes an article in Izvestia newspaper uh, 
where he advocates the establishment of something called the Eurasian Union, uh, which is what he he says. Uh, well, it, it's it's very similar to the Soviet Union. I mean, he didn't. He says it's not going to be like other unions, you know, meaning the Soviet Union. Um, but it's quite clear that, this, that that I think this is kind of a dog whistle. Uh, you know, we have this this concept of, of dog whistle. This is something that that a term that you use that's kind of deniable. You know, Putin can say, "Well, I'm not saying we're going to create the Soviet Union. Uh, we're just going to create something called the Eurasian Union, and it's very much like the European Union, and that's our model." Um, but everybody who's read uh, or who's familiar with these theories knows what he means and he can kind of communicate on a sort of an esoteric level with the rest of his elite in a, in a way using these kind of buzzwords. Um, so then in 2013 he, he used this, this buzzword again. Um, he, he told uh, the Valdai Center, these are a group of visiting academics in, um, who, who come to Russia uh, every year. Um, and uh, and it's, it's quite an event, and Putin usually gives a very big, uh, important speech to them. This, in 2013, he said, um, the 21st century promises to be a century of great change, the era of the formation of major continents of geopolitical, financial, economic, cultural, civilizational, political, and military power. And because of this, our absolute priority is the tight integration with our neighbors. Uh, and then he described uh, the Eurasian Union um, not in strictly trade and economic terms, but as a project for the preservation of identity of peoples of historical Eurasia in the new century and a new world. Eurasian integration is a chance for the former Soviet Union to become an independent center of global development rather than a periphery of Europe or Asia. So Putin's you know, the, the ambitions for Eurasia seem actually quite vast. Um, now, whether he believes this or not is, I think, beside the point. Um, you know, I don't believe that, that um, you know, I mean, let's take an example very close to home. I mean, uh, you know, um, does, does, does Boris Johnson really believe in Brexit? Um, you know, there, there's quite a number of people who believe that actually he really couldn't care less, but he's kind of using this as a um, as a way to further his political career. And this is the way a lot of politicians use nationalism. They 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 latch on to an issue and ride its coattails. And this seems to be what Putin is is doing. Um, so I think the, the question is not necessarily to ask, ask whether Putin believes it. Uh, it does matter what he says. Um, and, and actually, if you, if you look at Russia and if you look at what the policies that have been implemented um, over the last maybe five years, uh, over the last decade, um, you can see a kind of strikingly interesting uh, correlation between uh, the philosophy that I've described. I haven't described it very well. I'm sorry. It's, it, it would take an entire other lecture to describe what Eurasianism really is. 
um, and, and, and what it advocates. But um, there is a, there is a if, you, if you list the kind of the major steps by the regime, by the, by the Kremlin over the last decade, um, there is a, a, a very striking correlation between um, that and, and what the Eurasian project describes. Um, so there's a revival of the Orthodox Church, the pursuit of, of what they call a church-state symphony, um, there was a decision to allow the Baltics uh, to join NATO. Um, they are, according to the tracts of the, the movement, um, the not part of the, the, the natural boundary around the natural red line around this, you know, Eurasian um, sphere of interest influence that they they have. Um, uh, the decision to fight over Georgia and North Ossetia, um, the decision to fight over Ukraine the decision to consolidate a sphere of influence uh, and prevent uh, the European Union from encroaching on its sphere of influence and, and obviously on NATO. Um, the conflict over Western values in Russia, this is something that's actually erupted since Putin's come back to power and, or, well, not, not that he ever, had come back to a third term as, as president in 2012, um, is that they've, they've there is a move to kind of limit Western values, um, and, and the, 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 the hot-button issue has, has become gay rights in Russia. This, is, this has become a kind of a bellwether of, of um, the Kremlin's commitment to expunging Western values from, from Russia and uh, encouraging sort of native Russian uh, values to emerge. Uh, and lastly, uh, the, the rhetoric about something called, that, that Putin refers to as a civilization state. Um, he criticizes the concept of the nation state uh, as something that's outmoded and, and archaic and not uh, in the interest of, of Russia's uh, heft as a, as a historical power uh, and instead um, uh, has, has advocated the establishment of a civilization state. Now, that's just a, it's a word, but it actually makes, it's actually a, it tells us a lot. When, when, when uh, a president or when an elite starts to talk in these terms. Um, sorry. So I think we're coming to the end of... Should we take... Yeah. Um, so I think that's uh, about what I wanted to say. Um, I mean, it's quite compelling. I would say that... Um, you know, this is not. This is. There's been this very profound acceptance of radical, marginal ideas in Russia over the last decade, and the process of that happening is something that I don't fully understand, and I don't think anybody quite fully understands it. But it's it's probably the most important thing that's been that's happened since I began paying attention to Russia. Um, and it's an expression of how utterly the consensus in Russia has changed over the last, uh, well, since, since Putin came to power. And I, I guess what I've been trying to say is that, um, that, that he's aided and abetted this, um, but it's not entirely driven by him or by, it's not entirely inspired, uh, not entirely intentional. So um, I guess that's... Uh, well, thank, th thanks so much indeed, Charles, for giving us so much to 
chew on and lots of hooks for our questions. I just have a question, first of all. How many people in the audience are Russian? Two. That's very good. Oh, Ukrainian? Or anywhere else in that? What we Georgia. Wonderful. So we've got a few people here who've got first-hand knowledge of, um, of what Charles has been talking about. Um, I've got loads of questions, but it would be unfair if I abuse my position as chair to fire them all at once. Um, so we've got about 45 minutes, and I'd encourage you all to be bold. I know Charles, like me, enjoys hostile questions. So if you oh, I really do, yeah. So if you, if you just want to say you think the book is wonderful and you've bought six copies, that's you very nice. That. If you want to say it's complete rubbish and here's why, that will make it much more entertaining. Um, so on that, uh, let's, let's, let's see if anyone wants to um, kick off. Yes, gentleman at the back there. Go ahead, sir. I think we may have a roving microphone, which is a change since I was at LSE, but there we are. It's progress. It may even work. Go ahead, sir. Okay. To what extent are the tendencies you've described informed by paranoia and who are the targets of the paranoia? For example, I've heard one uh, admirer of Putin say uh, quite sincerely and seriously that the recent fall in the oil price was caused by a conspiracy between the United States and Saudi Arabia to wreck the Russian economy. So, question about paranoia and how far Eurasianism feeds on paranoia, real or just because Russia's paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get it. <laughs> there probably are a fair number of people out to get it uh, by now. Um, not sure that was the case when, when um, Putin started being paranoid, but, um, but it certainly is probably the case now. Um, I mean, definitely... Um, Okay, one observation is that in my career as a, as a journalist, uh, the most paranoid people I have ever met have all, without exception, been employees of the intelligence services. Of the Russian intelligence services? Everybody's. Everybody's. <laughs> Every, okay, so, so people who are in charge of creating conspiracies, uh, whether these guys are in the CIA or MI6 or... Um, the ISI or the KGB or whoever uh, tend to be the most paranoid about the existence of other conspiracies. So I'm, I will throw that out there. Putin, being a former intelligence age, uh, officer, um, probably uh, has the same characteristic of, uh, of being extremely paranoid. Um, if you come to power in Russia, you are probably very paranoid uh, and it's probably a very good, um, uh, <laughs> healthy characteristic. Um, Putin's speeches do indicate that he is paranoid. Um, I do think that, you know, a paranoia, I mean, you know, some of his speeches are obviously, um, you know, just written by his advisors and stuff. I, I mean, you do see a strain of paranoia running through his public speeches. To what extent that's... Um, Paranoid and ill-informed as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll focus on the paranoia. Uh, I mean, you know, to what extent that's his speechwriter saying, okay, we've got to play on, you know, uh, fear of, uh, of the Americans... Um, or whether, you know, whether that's actually Putin saying, um, I think Hillary Clinton is out to get me. Um, you know, it's not entirely clear, but you do have that. Certainly, um, 
paranoia is alive and well in you know the public communications of the Kremlin. Whether that's real paranoia, I don't know. But you know, paranoia does feed into a nationalist mindset because part of you know every nationalist movement everywhere in the world is all about you know it's about fear. It's about uh, you know we have been humiliated. We have been, uh, we are being kept down by a conspiracy of, you know, the, the foreigners. Uh, we must fight back. We must take back our rightful place in, you know, our, our, our former great power status or something like that. Um, so paranoia does form part of the nationalist mindset. It is definitely an inalienable part of the nationalist mindset in Anywhere you see this in in the Middle East, in China, in America, in Britain, in Russia. Um, so I, I definitely think that paranoia. You know, I mean, you're, you're right to point out that factor uh, that paranoia is is definitely alive and well uh, at the at the upper reaches of the Kremlin, and um, and it's also an extremely important part of the whole nationalist mindset. And you also make the point in the book, very interestingly, that there's this kind of cognitive dissonance between the idea that Russia is a superior civilization, but the West seems to be so much more successful, and that the, the sort of, one of the roots of Eurasianism was the attempt to try and resolve that by saying, yes, the West may look more successful, but it's, um, actually it's, it's, it's decadent and hostile, and we have to defend ourselves against it. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, I have uh, really read the book. <laughs> No, no, it's 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 that that sort of the 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 Western the rotting West is a is a definite is a trope, and and again that that's not just Eurasianism it's it's um, it's nationalism broadly speaking. I mean I, I I find that in in China with the neo Maoists um, in the Middle East with the Islamic fundamentalism, um, you can find that oddly in America itself. <laughs> that's a, a major part of uh, the Donald Trump rhetoric. Uh, so nationalism, you know, the, the rotting West is definitely a part of this kind of view of, of um, you know, unresolved greatness that we need to yeah. aspire to. Let's have some more questions. The, who are the targets of nationalism? We'll come to that. In, we'll take, take a couple of questions together. So in the middle, yes, go ahead, sir, with your white beard. Thank you. Uh, I had some difficulties about uh, your definition of nationalism. I, mean, I expected quite a bit more, by the way, in terms of uh, Russian definition of nationalism. What you've given us is something of uh, hooligan nationalism, skinhead nationalism, mm -hmm. which exists in many other places. Uh, Russia will see itself as being facing an invasion. NATO is right down to the Ukraine. Uh, Russia has been invaded on two occasions and were two major world occasions. Once by Napoleon, second time by Adolf Hitler. And the great thing for the Russians, because they've already got a made nationalism and supranationalism, is the great patriotic war. The battles of Leningrad, Moscow, Stalingrad. I mean, I was born during the Second World War. Stalingrad is the supreme battle recognized by everyone of the Second World War. The Germans themselves, who have been defeated there, will recognize it. And Putin has brought it back. 
we now have major military parades of the nature that didn't exist before. He's brought back the Soviet national anthem and uh, all the patriotic songs from the Second World War are back again. They don't exist anywhere else. I mean, we know them. Vera Lynn, people who know about Vera Lynn and how popular she was here in Britain, that is barely mentioned, but it is back now in Russia. And uh, you don't seem to have addressed that at all because everything else I would expect would be an offshoot of that. But here is something ready-made for the Russians. A, they're at the center of it, and it wasn't just the Russian uh, effort, the defeat of Adolf Hitler. Bear in mind that the Red Army uh, uh, had uh, nine of the ten largest victories, at least in manpower, of the Second World War. And uh, it wasn't just achieved by the Russians. It was effectively an international Russian effort. If you like, a communist effort, as far as Stalin was concerned, but it is their great patriotic war that is at the center of it. And you just haven't mentioned it. Well, to be, to be fair to Charles, I, I mean, his, his book has a great deal in it, which we haven't touched on now. He's just, it's one of the problems of being an author is whatever you talk about, people say, why don't you talk about something else? Um, but I, I guess one of the problems in this, Charles, is that the, there's, there's quite a chunk of the Russian nationalists which have a, a sneaking sus- sympathy for Hitler. Mm-hmm. And this, this, makes, this makes it, so they're quite, it's rather, it's a good question. If you meet a Russian ultranationalist, you should always ask him, do you regard yourself as an Ubermensch or an Untermensch? <laughs> Um, no, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, there is a, a vast uh, canon of official nationalism under Putin that, um, I mean, I mean, first of all, there is an extremely proud Russian tradition of history that they can draw on of legitimate victories over fascism that um, um, that that are, you know, a, a totally legitimate, um, you know, history to be, to be incredibly proud of. Um, that has been tapped um, by the Kremlin under Putin as a kind of an official patriotism. Um, now, I would argue, I mean, my, my talk has been focused on, you know, fringe, skinhead, lunatic groups. Um, I would argue that those groups deserve a huge amount more attention than they've been getting um, I spent quite a bit of time um, in Russia, uh, you know, writing about these these groups. Probably more than my editor would have liked me to spend. But, um, but uh, you know, I don't want to minimize the the move by the Kremlin to take to to sort of create uh, publicity to create an official nationalism. Now, that was important, though. I would argue. Um, precisely because it moved the playing field of Russian politics into the nationalist realm. And when you start, um, when, the leader, when, when, when a country's leaders start to say, well, we deserve to lead because we are you know, the best example of this national tradition, um, we are the best Russians, you start, you, you empower other groups in society to come and say, actually, we are the better Russians. You invite a new generation of radicals to say, okay, this is the the terms of the political debate. 
we are now competing over who are the better nationalists, who are the better patriots, who are the better Russians. And you invite the radicalization of politics along nationalist lines. And, and we've seen this in the Middle East a lot as well. Um, you know, the, the, these, these regimes in the Middle East who are not democratic and they rule based on, they say, well, we are the best Muslims. You know, the, the Saudi monarchy says, well, we deserve to... Um, our positions because we are the, you know, the guardians of the holy places and we are uh, the best Muslims. Um, and that invites a new generation of radicals to come and say, well, actually, we're the better Muslims. Um, and that creates a space, uh, a playing field in, in using those symbols and using nationalism and using identity politics for a new generation to emerge. And that's precisely what's happened is that the nationalism, the official nationalism has created the space for a new radical nationalism to emerge and the Kremlin has had to take, inv- take, take into account that and move into an even more kind of radical position. Um, there's also an interesting tension. There's two strands of the kind of <clears throat> new Kremlin nationalism. One is the Eurasianism, which you mentioned, which is a sort of supranational supra-ethnic, something that you can support whether you're a Tatar or Bulgarian or any sort of um, loosely post-Soviet nationality. It's a sort of civilizational project. Um, And then the other is Ruski Mir, which is the idea Mm, that that there's something very, very, it's a particularist Russian um, or Russian-centered idea. And I, I find these two are incompatible. I don't see how you can support both at the same time, because if you're supporting Ruski Mir, you're saying Russians are better than anybody else. And if you're a Eurasianist, you're saying our whole landmass represents a different civilization. Um, do you yeah. think those are reconcilable? No. Um, and the, the, but the, the interesting thing about, about nationalism and about these, these intellectuals in general is that contradictions simply don't bother them. And I have to say... Nobody's really, I mean, when you say stuff like, you know, um, we are the heirs of, of Genghis Khan versus, you know, uh, we are an example of, uh, of, of, of Russian civilization. And, um, you know, th- th- these are, these are incredible, these are incompatible, but, but nobody's actually forcing anybody to explain themselves particularly. Um, everybody's, what, what people hear is not logical, mm-hmm. but it, it somehow, and I'm, I'm completely amazed by this process everywhere I see it, um, nobody, you know, nobody questions the logic. Mm. And, and actually, belief, I would say, belief doesn't actually play a major role in nationalism. Belief and logic uh, you know, kind of get suspended at the door. I'm not quite sure you know, whether Russian, whether any nationalists, you know, how many nationalists actually really wholeheartedly believe in their nation. It's like going to a football game. You cheer. Do you really care about the team that you're cheering mm. for? It's an emotional, it's an emotional or a sociological phenomenon. Um, but pointing out, you know, a lot of a lot of work is being done on on how to address you know the problems of identity politics and how to address you know terrorism and mm. and um, jihadi groups and and nationalism and and I think. You know that, that treating it as a kind of a cognitive or a psychological thing is is maybe not the right approach. It, I'm not sure how much belief actually plays a role. 
When I reviewed your book in The Economist, I argued that Eurasianism is best understood as a response to trauma rather yeah. than as an actual belief system. But anyway, enough Absolutely of that. Let's right. have some more questions. Gentleman over there in the blue shirt, we are entirely male um, space at the moment, but if uh, anyone sorry. wants to break I'll ask that, two questions if I may, and then you decide if you will answer both of them. The first of them... Where, where are you from, sir? I'm from Uzbekistan. Uh, first question is, you've only lightly uh, touched the Russian Orthodox Church. I just wanted to ask, uh, what do you see as the role of or Russian Orthodox Church? Is it the side of this nationalism, or is it a tool employed by Kremlin to manage it? And second is, uh, what do you think are challenges in, uh, Russian, in Russia uh, for, for example, when central government supports this clearly radical and racist uh, organizations. What, is it, what are the challenges in uh, national republics? Uh, as you know, Russia is a fed, fe federation and some of the republics got clearly, uh, the, the, the Russian population, ethnic Russians are in minorities there and they clearly had in the past and up until very recently um, very uh, well, strong nationalist drive there, which has been made, made it since um, like providing them large subsidies, but at the moment with forthcoming economic crisis, what are the challenges there? Well, of course, Tatarstan would argue that Tatarstan subsidizes the center with its, with its oil. But anyway, two, two excellent questions there. How, mm. What about the Russian Orthodox Church, and how does this play in the um, republics, particularly ones where the Russians are in a minority? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we get back into this idea of, of the contradictions of nationalism a lot, because... Um, the Kremlin would love to say, you know, would love to say we are, you know, uh, pro-orthodoxy. Um, we, you know, cover ourselves in the mantle of the Orthodox Church, and they do. Um, but they, they also are very cognizant of the fact that when the more Russian they get um, in the public media, the more nervous you know the the Chechens, the 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 Yakuts, the uh, you know the, the the minority nationalities get, and and especially the more nervous the the Muslim minorities get in in Russia, and they and they they know that they need a, a kind of a ruling idea that takes into account, um, you know, both uh, the Russians, the the minorities living in the, in the Russian Federation, but also uh, potentially if if they're going to seek, to, you know, to to um, to appeal to a much wider territory, uh, you know, in the former Soviet Union, they need to um, they need to have an idea that will be broadly palatable to um, Muslims, Buddhists, Orthodox Christians, um, Tatars, Russians, Ukrainians, um, and that's that's where this this kind of supranational nationalism comes in. This kind of this this tendency towards talking about Eurasia, but it, it really depends on the audience. You know, you can you know um, Putin can go if if Putin goes to um, you know to a minority republic, um, he'll dress in the national costume and. Uh, um, but um, on an Orthodox holiday, he'll um, light a candle in an Orthodox church. Um, he he tries to be not exclusive to any one religion, and the and the problem with with embracing orthodoxy, this sort of Russia as the third Rome um, ideology, is that that the church would like to be, you know, the, the Orthodox Church would obviously love to be the state religion of Russia, and that's a totally unacceptable 
thing uh, for for the for for non-orthodox um, Russians. Um, so the further you move towards the church, the more nervous everybody else gets. So there's always going to be a limit. Um, but you know, you also have these. You know, I mean, the, the Kremlin is is a bit arrogant in the sense that they they don't believe that the contradictions really apply to them. They can be Russian nationalists uh, one day, and they can be uh, Orthodox believers another day, and they can be you know um, you know Tatar nationalists, uh, and then they can and, and they don't really believe that. That, that, that logic or, you know, that people are going to hold them to some sort of, you know, responsible uh, you know, standards of, of demagoguery than uh, in the end. And so far, it seems to be working. <laughs> right. Let's have some more questions. Um, let me get an idea of if you, if you c- would conceivably like to ask a question in the next 25 minutes, put, put your hand up just so I get an idea of who, uh, who else is uh, on the menu. Uh, we've got two over here. Let's have the gentleman in the front row first and the um, chap at the back in the... Uh, thank you very much for your talk. <coughs> My name is Johan, and um, I'm from Finland. Uh, I'm wondering, because um, nationalism, as we can see, it has been spreading, as you also also mentioned, uh, both in, in the United States, but also in, in, uh, in Europe. And one major reason for this has, of course, been also the economic insecurity caused uh, by the economic crisis and, uh, uh, and many of the failures of the current economic system that, that we have. Uh, and as Russia also saw quite a strong market liberalization uh, after the fall uh, of the Soviet Union, and, and it has been, uh, it's, it's been under process there, do you think that, that in Russia actually these economic inequalities and social, yeah, economic and social inequalities uh, are as well uh, a cause for uh, raising the, the rise of nationalism? Thank you. Um, Take that, Charles. Okay. Uh, well, you write a book on that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, absolutely, every, everywhere you see nationalism, there's, there's always a socioeconomic component to it. Um, you know, the, the hard part, though, is, I mean, Russia has been becoming more and more prosperous. I mean, over the last decade and a half, uh, you've seen, you know, average incomes rising uh, about threefold. Um, and... So it would be hard to say that, you know, um, impoverishment of the, of, the, of the middle class or something is, is, a, is a cause for rising nationalism. I and mean, people are not necessarily getting worse off um, over the period that we see nationalism rising. So, um, but, but it's certainly nationalism is concentrated at the lowest end of of the, the, the sort of the spectrum. I mean, when, when, when we're talking about radical uh, skinhead gangs, these are, these are not people who are, you know, these are concentrated in, in sort of suburban outlying um, areas uh, of major cities. Um, and these are places where there's a lot of, you know, a lot of drugs and crime and social problems and incomes are not, not high. Um, but I wouldn't say it's... Um, I wouldn't say rising nationalism is confined to that strata, you know, to that group of people by itself. Because I mean, you've, you've seen the 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 elite becoming more nationalist in over the same period, over the same kind of um, decade and a half. I think 
uh, if you, you look at the CSIS study by Gerber and Mendelssohn, the most anti-Western segment of the entire country was young university-educated male Muscovites. Mm. That was in like 2008, which sort of predates that. Yeah, yeah. There was a study by the Center for Political Technologies, which was earlier, um, but that said that that basically, uh, it was, I think it was published in 2002. Um, that was quite a wake-up call because it said that there was there was a a worldview that had until that time been held exclusively in kind of the the lowest uh, you know the lowest elements of society the lowest income elements of society uh, was now was was at that time very pervasive at the top of you know it, it had, had sort of infiltrated into the elite um, and this was after you know a decade of of economic misery um, but it had um, you know the, the fact that that the the, the most the, these these nationalistic attitudes had had become general and, and also and had had spread to the elite was something that had happened very early under Putin. There's a gentleman at the back there. He's, the microphone is just coming to you. My name's Chris David. Um, I'd be interested in your view as to how you square the circle between, on the one hand. Um, the nationalism, managed nationalism you've talked about and uh, the policies of the Kremlin um, which by all accounts would seem to be working very well these days if you take into account the fact that Putin's ratings have never been as high as they are today at a time when the economic fortunes of the country have been at one of their lowest points in his tenure. So it seems to me that actually whatever he's doing around managed or patriotic nationalism would seem to be working for him. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. While Charles is drinking, I, I feel this in a country with the level of political repression we now have. I'm not surprised that 80-plus percent of people think Putin's wonderful. I'm amazed that 10% are brave enough to tell a total stranger that they think he isn't. <laughs> Yeah, there, there is a there is a question about the accuracy of these these studies, and and um, obviously um, you you really can't compare a, a, a public opinion poll taken in Russia with a, a public opinion uh, poll taken in the U.S. where uh, or, or Britain, where um, you know political leaders are constantly criticized on television, and you don't you, don't, you know you don't see that in in Russia, so um, you know, comparing Putin's rating with Obama's rating or with Cameron's rating um, wouldn't be entirely correct. Um, that said, you know, the reason that all political leaders play the nationalist card is for precisely this reason. It's the you know, it's uh, it's a kind of a it's almost a desperate measure. I, I wouldn't say that Putin necessarily wants to be in this position where he's being forced to kind of portray himself as some sort of uh, besieged um, nationalist savior or something. Uh, he'd, he'd rather be, um, you know, seen as a, as a statesman who's welcome in foreign capitals and things. But this is a, a kind of a desperate measure, and it's it's one that you see in country after country. Um, you know the, the the Western sanctions on Russia feed into this uh, narrative that they've 
they've got about Russia being sort of a you know fortress under siege. Um, uh, I'm not saying the sanctions are a bad idea. I think I think it's a very you know considering um, the situation that it's quite a quite a good idea um, to put economic pressure on on Russia. But um, the you know the, these are. This, this will happen. You, you see this happen in, in in many countries that are under, you know, that, that are internationally isolated. You see it in North Korea. You see it in, um, you know, uh, you saw it in, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Um, this is this is a, a card that that um, that political leaders play when they're under sort of international, uh, when they're being sort of internationally isolated. So, and it works. That's why they do it. I have a question, Charles, because you, you hint in your book that the KGB and the late Soviet era was sponsoring um, Russian nationalism with this repulsive organization, Pamyat, which was the, sort of big, the, the first sort of explicitly fascist organization in, 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 in the sort of late, late Soviet Union. And you sort of hint that there was, there's a kind of deep state, um, yeah, the old, yeah, bits of the old KGB, which latched onto this before it became mainstream and were helping these organizations right back in the early 90s. I think you described them as ideological orphans because communism had collapsed and they didn't know what, um, uh, what else to believe in. But, but how, how much weight do you, do you give to that? Do you think that, this is, that, that you can trace what's now Eurasianism right back to the 90s and the sort of collapse of the Soviet Union? Or do you think it's really an autonomous sort of growth that came up in the mid middle of the last decade? Um, I mean, I, I, I put that evidence in the book because I think there's definitely something to it. Um, but I never found proof, no smoking guns or anything. There were, there were a lot of... I mean, what's clear is that, you know, there was a profoundly disaffected class of people um, in the, you know, in the security services and in the security ministries of the Soviet Union who were you know, totally unaccepting of the new reality under under Yeltsin, and probably sought to subvert it in any way they could. And and um, you know, in a lot of countries, there is such a thing as the deep state. I mean, I think we use that as a as a, a kind of a term. I mean, in in Turkey, actually, it's 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 actually. Well known that it, it exists. There's a, there are court cases uh, about the deep state. Um, you know, it, it is the military and security elites um, tend to run things from behind the scenes. Um, and I would say, you know, that's happened in, in a number of countries, uh, especially in, you know, in sort of new democracies. Um, and that this is it's quite likely that this happened in Russia too that there was a kind of a, a consensus among the, the 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 people with the power to you know that they weren't going to let things get out of hand but that and they were going to um, uh, try and move things in a certain direction um, but you know I wouldn't you know the, the, I mean the, the, there are, there is enough smoke. Um, that, yeah, I would say that there were probably, you know, I don't know how organized this group was, and I don't know how, you know, whether there was any sort of central direction or something, but I think there was clearly a consensus uh, among hardliners and, you know, people with, with 
power in the state to, um, you know, around a kind of a, a new nationalist view. So, we've got time for just one or one more question. If um, there's a gentleman there, go ahead in the green sweater at the front. Hello, Don Levis. Did Putin's motivations for going into Syria uh, involve managing nationalism? Um, I, I think, I mean, I don't really know. There, there were a number of theories about why they did that. Um, one was to demonstrate the, the sort of the prestige of the Russian military. Uh, another was to practice, you know, um, very complicated types of, of air operations in a in a in a battleground that where where they were were able to to use new weapons a new generation of weapon systems they were able to demonstrate their proficiency with the new generation of weapon systems and they were able to show the world that actually they could use them quite well and I think this was kind of a demonstration um, you know lest anybody get ideas about meddling in, you know, um, Russia's strategic backyard, uh, Russia was actually quite good at, um, you know, doing uh, cruise missile strikes from submarines from 900 kilometers away and things like, you know, these are, these are quite complicated operations and, and they, were, they, did, they did them, as far as I can tell, pretty flawlessly. Um, so I, I guess demonstration is probably the best Explanation: There was certainly a domestic political component to this. You know, it, it showed Russia being, uh, you know, intervening and intervening well, and in, I mean, not well, <laughs> intervening effectively in a, um, you know, in a, in a global conflict and and outflanking the U.S. Uh, in a sense. You know, they were. Uh, and, and I think that was that was quite important to, to, that they were able to show that. Um, so there was certainly a kind of a demonstration. And there was also a kind of a propaganda effort uh, component to that. But I, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that that um, that that. I mean, I think that was tangentially related to the whole sort of nationalist narrative. Yes. I mean, I, I guess you, you could argue that the, there'd been a very successful kind of season of political soap opera in Ukraine, and that had come to a, a bit mm. of a halt with the failure of the Novorossiya project, failure of the Ukrainians' ability to withstand the Russians militarily, and the failure of any attempt to collapse Ukraine internally. And so that Ukraine had hit a bit of a dead end, and maybe it was a, it's a, it was it, it was something to put on telly, if if nothing else, that looked, yeah, that looked yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think in this, in this is another burning question. I'm going to ask you to form an orderly queue outside as you queue up to buy this absolutely excellent book from my old friend <laughs> Charles, um, which has a great deal in it that we haven't even touched on um, tonight. Um, we've, we haven't really looked at the whole philosophical side and the this extraordinary story of Anna Akhmatova's son, who bizarrely, through his time in the Gulag, became and a kind of Stockholm syndrome and a kind of arch-nationalist and apologist in a way that I think is almost worthy of a book on its own. So there's really there's a huge amount in it. I can't recommend it strongly enough. Um, please join me in thanking Charles very much indeed for spending time here.